Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 485 of the podcast and it is Friday the 17th of April 2020 as I record this on day 25 of lockdown here in the UK. So today I have an interview with the fantastic Gail Carragher. We talk about our shared love of research and how Gail turned that into an alternate history story universe, as well as the importance of building an author brand and how that resonates through your writing, your website, your book covers, and even what you wear to conventions, plus Gail's experience of all kinds of publishing models over the years. So I know you'll find this useful and that is coming up in the interview segment. In publishing news, well, obviously the continued effects of the shutdown on the publishing industry. And I can't and I don't want to cover everything here. There really is so much going on, as you know. Jane Friedman put out a fantastic roundup in the Hot Sheet newsletter this week. It is the best premium email newsletter if you want to stay up to date with the publishing industry. Go to hotsheetpub.com if you want to um, subscribe. But just a couple of things that uh, I thought were interesting. Publishers Lunch calculates the market is down nearly 9% overall looking at year-on-year sales, but (laughs) that's overall. Adult titles are down 26%. Juvenile titles up 12.8%. Yes, homeschooling, clearly a boon for um, children's books. And remember, that is print publishing. So I just thought that was interesting. It's kind of obvious, but uh, good to see that children's books are at least happening. There are a lot of independent bookstores doing crowdfunding and there's a lot of support, which is fantastic. Authors like James Patterson have weighed in to help. And if you go to use the hashtag hash save indie bookstores, there are uh, lots of things going on for independents. Bigger stores might have more of an issue in this case. Drafter Digital this week sent out an email to those of us who publish with Drafter Digital saying that Barnes & Noble has informed us that they are experiencing some delays in processing payments due to having to shift to remote operation. And that's payments for February. Now, I've been running my business with online banking for over a decade. (laughs) So... I just, you know, makes me a little suspicious that Barnes & Noble can't make their payments on time. But um, we shall see. Keep an eye on that one. Obviously, they've got hundreds of stores shut. Uh, Publishers Weekly reports that libraries have pretty much stopped buying print books and are moving to digital formats. Now, this is a fantastic trend. Uh, Very good news for independent authors, since most of us price our books much more cheaply for the library market or even use the paper checkout model, which Drafter Digital um, have. Go back and listen to episode 482 just a couple of weeks ago with Mark Leslie Lefebvre on getting into libraries. And we talk about getting ebooks, print books and audiobooks into libraries. Now, this, this is a trend that will certainly continue once libraries realise how much more they can get for their money with ebooks. And once borrowers realise that they can uh, read this way, I think we're going to see a lot of readers shifting to digital. Uh, 
Uh, we also uh, some evidence uh, Open Road Media, which focuses on backlist ebook publishing, sees a 50% jump in revenue. So digital publishing particularly is seeing a bounce. Uh, what else? Uh, big publishers, a lot of them are furloughing employees, taking pay cuts. The European publishing sector reports a 25% drop in revenue. The bookseller has reported that Bloomsbury, which publishes Harry Potter books, is issuing shares and cutting costs in anticipation of print revenues falling 75%. Uh, so that's pretty significant. And Lonely Planet Publishing closes its Melbourne and London offices. Lonely Planet, I mean, I have such an emotional connection to Lonely Planet. They were the first guidebooks I bought back in the day <laughs> when I started going travelling in the, I guess, really the mid-90s or early 90s. And uh, I still buy the Lonely Planet guides as my default brand. So it's quite sad to see them um, suffering. But I, having talked to younger people, I mean, I'm so I'm 45. I talk to younger people. They don't buy guidebooks anymore. So I can see that this is what we're going to see with a lot of the companies that are struggling. The ones that drop off may have already been struggling anyway. And this might be something that finishes them in, in many cases. But yeah, certainly print travel guides might be something that uh, we're well, definitely going to have a tough, tough time. Also, uh, the hot sheet quotes a fiction editor at Tor, uh, Tor Publishing, who posted on Facebook with a really good uh, article about why publishing is in so much trouble. It's more complicated than most people think. Uh, you need to know that the vast majority of our business remains in hardcover and paperbacks, hard objects, hard copies, physical objects. The second strongest sector has been audiobooks. Ebooks are a distant third. So remember that for indie authors, ebooks are our primary income, with uh, print and audio as um, probably print as second audio is third for most people, because most indies still don't have audiobooks. But um, coming back to publishers, it's a long and complicated supply chain. Storing paper uh, takes an enormous amount of warehouse space. So we order in paper, um, which is not an essential business. Big printing plants are not essential businesses, even if we had paper. The printers, the binderies, the books shipped to the warehouse, all non-essential businesses and non-essential movement. Workers in the warehouse, distributors, truck drivers, all should not be working or have, have not been working. Plus, bookstores are closed. Distributors, are closed. There's nowhere to deliver the print books to. Some bookstores are doing mail order, um, but they aren't getting moving very many books that way. And I'll, I'll certainly say from my perspective, I order quite a lot of print books normally. Um, in fact, I just ordered a couple <laughs> just before uh, getting on here. Um, one to support a business that I love and the other one for the Save the NHS book, which is coming out here in the UK, uh, or Love the NHS, something like that anyway. Um, but those are going to go on pre-order and they'll print them once this is all over, I guess. But um, this article says, you know, there are not many books really being uh being put out this way, mainly because I guess a lot of us buy books in bookstores because we're in there browsing and we'll pick up one and then we'll end up coming out with five. <laughs> That's certainly my behaviour. Um, what else? The books that distributors and sellers ordered months ago are not being printed or shipped or sold are not making any money and they are not ordering books for months from now. Plus they aren't paying for the books they got from us last month and the month before. Cash flow has ground to a halt and that 
cash flow thing is what I mentioned last week or the week before. The time just runs into each other now, don't you think? It's like blooming Groundhog Day. Um, but this cash flow is critical within the publishing and the book sales industry. And this is where I think the issue is going to be because um, it, it, this 60-day lag means that, as I've said before, May, June, July, they're going to be the months where things are going to be more of an issue. Even if bookstores open again in June or July, there are some uh, opening now in Italy, I think, this week, but certainly won't be in the UK until June Um because they've just told us we're locked down for at least another three weeks. So probably be June. Even if they open in June, the publishers won't get the money for June sales until August, basically. So you can see the ripple effect. Um, This post also says, audiobooks, turns out that people mostly listen to audiobooks while they commute to work. (laughs) Sales of audiobooks collapsed about three weeks ago, which is really interesting because we don't get reports on audiobooks very fast. Um, we only see those month or so later. So I don't really know what my audiobooks are doing. What I can tell you is certainly listenership to this show has dropped. Um, you know, not completely. There's certainly a dip. And that is because people are not commuting. Uh, hopefully that will pick up again. But I can understand that this is true. And I find again, my own behaviour, I don't have enough time to listen to everything I want to listen to, because I'm not walking outside. And when I am walking, um, I'm walking with my husband rather than on my own. So I'm not listening to audio. Um, Yeah, so none of us want publishing houses to go under. Like, really, I love books. We all love books. We are book people. Publishers, agents, they're all book people and uh, we love them. And bookstores, really, we want this to come back stronger. So that's, you know, one thing is as consumers and readers and book lovers, we want these businesses to survive. But secondly, (laughs) got to be entirely selfish about this, Indies. If publishers get serious about ebooks, they will really squeeze the indie space. And it's funny because a lot of the time we're talking about squeezing the traditional publishing space. So, for example, some genres now are almost completely dominated by ebooks. And uh, so, you know, romance is a good example. Uh, and some publishers have just disappeared out of those genres because they're so owned by indie authors. But if, if publishers get serious about digital, with ebooks and with audiobooks, it is going to really make us have to raise our game significantly and will obviously make the space um, less, well, I get more, more difficult. Um, so I would say expect 2021 to see a lot more digital imprints from traditional publishers. And that will be interesting. Uh, so I think these changes are going to push more and more readers to digital, which will in turn will push more and more publishers to digital. We might find that the publishers just start publishing the books they have in the queue in ebook only anyway for the next few months. So we shall see. But um, certainly I would love the publishing industry to get back on its feet. So hopefully that will happen. 
So in my personal update, as I just said, uh, lockdown has been extended here in the UK for at least another three weeks. And it is beginning to feel a bit like the new normal. Uh, yes, Groundhog Day. <laughs> and again, the ennui comes and goes. Um, but in terms of getting back to my novel, I am uh, almost finished the first draft of Map of the Impossible. So hopefully by the time I speak to you next week, I'll have printed my first draft. I'm at that point where I really, really just want to print it. But I know I can't because I don't print it until I've finished a whole end-to-end draft that I can read. Uh, I know it needs some work. It's the third in a trilogy and it, it is it wraps up the story um, of the other two Matt books, Matt Walker books. So yeah, I'm but it, coming to the end of the first draft, so that's good. But uh wanted to come back on things around that cash flow I mentioned. But let me talk about a metaphor. <laughs> so what has been sad in the last week is the walk along the canal uh, towpath, which is what I've been doing now for, for years living here. I love it. It's one of it's my happy place. I'm just so happy when I walk along the canal. Um, but uh, those who live on the canal in the canal boats are, um, you know, fair enough, they're frustrated with people walking more along the towpath and it's hard to be two metres apart because they're not that wide. So there are lots of signs up asking people not to walk there so much. So we have altered our walk. Um, But the other thing is that usually the water in a canal is, is moving because the lock gates are opening and closing all the time as the boats go up and down the canals and that keeps the water flowing and obviously with boats moving up and down as well it's it's uh, moving the water it's getting the oxygen in the fish uh, are there and then the fish support the community of bird life um, the herons just wonderful ecosystem but what's happened is that because nothing's moving the lock gates are closed um, the boats aren't are all moored up there are patches of algae growing which are smelling and the fish are dying because the um, oxygen's not being the water's not being oxygenated and that's got to impact the herons and the bird life and it's super sad I mean it's really sad we walked there the other day and I was just Oh, I've never seen the canal like this because it's such a vibrant community and part of, you know, it's a waterway. It's a this wonderful place and it looks like it's going to need dredging again. And it, it just became very noticeable that unless we keep things moving, they begin to stagnate. And thus is my metaphor. I mean, for one you know, the Canal and River Trust, which I'm a friend of here in the UK, do a great job. And I know that things will get better once things start moving again. Um, But that stagnation because of no movement is a metaphor for us, for our creativity, for cash flow, like we've just heard about the publishing industry, for potentially our physical health. I don't know about you, but you know, I've been I have been working out with my trainer online and walking and everything, but I still feel my body's you know, not getting enough movement than it as it wants. Um, so it made me think about uh, also like with Map of the Impossible, everything was getting backed up in my brain and your brain begins to stagnate if you don't keep things moving. So I wanted to challenge you. My question this week is what do you need to get moving so it doesn't stagnate? For example, is there a project that has been sitting there for so long um, and you just keep looking at it and it's gathering algae in the corner? (laughs) 
gathering dust. Is it time to ditch that project altogether or set aside some time to get it done? And I think this is this is a very good time for us to be reevaluating what we want. I'm certainly um, going to be doing a lessons learned from COVID-19 post uh, once things are back to normal. I'm sort of working on that uh, because I'm really reevaluating things. And if you remember um, a month or so ago when I was talking to Austin Cleon and when we did the interview the early part of the year, I was definitely feeling like my business was stagnating, that my passion for this business perhaps was dulling a little bit. And this disaster pandemic has really reinvigorated me. It's made me more determined than ever. And to stop taking things for granted, uh, really, I mean, seriously, I feel kind of fired up to get back into this in a big way. So yeah, what do you need to keep moving so it doesn't stagnate? That's the question for today. Okay, in useful stuff, which as ever are time limited, so depending on whether you listen to this, might be gone. But um, the Mysterious Women Story Bundle, if you would like nine crime, mystery and thriller novels, plus a short story collection, including my own London crime thriller, Deviance, which uh, I must say the London crime thriller series is one of my favourite of my own books, if I do say so myself. <laughs> also books by Christine Catherine Rush, writing as Chris Nelscott in there, and Rachel Amflett, amongst others, in a pay-what-you-like deal. Check it out at storybundle.com forward slash crime. Storybundle.com forward slash crime. And if you like ebook bundles, then um, you can... Story Bundle always has a ton of stuff going on. It's brilliant. Second bundle and coming back to Christine Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith, who you guys should know by now are my mentors in the business, my role models uh, in business, also in marriage because they are uh, happily married and um, a wonderful creative partnership. They are running a Kickstarter with bundles of their non-fiction books for writers. I have already bought and read all of these books. I literally buy anything Dean and Chris put out there um, for writers. I can't recommend their work highly enough. So you can go to, just go to Kickstarter and put in Dean Wesley Smith. His his name is just spelt like it's said. Dean Wesley Smith. And uh, there'll be links in the show notes. That is available until the 30th of April. So that is not long at all, but that is super, super value. So go get that. Plus Ingram Spark, uh, valid until May 31st, 2020, has a um, a promo for free title setup and revisions. So if you want to get your print book set up ready for when things get back to normal (laughs) with print on demand, you can get free title setup and revisions using the code Ingram Spark 2020, all caps. Ingram Spark 2020 in uh, all capital letters. Again, links in the show notes. Right. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. You can always tweet me at the creative pen with a double N or email me uh, or leave a comment on the show notes. Alison says, your podcast finally pushed me to get my direct sales set up on my website and I already started making sales within the first few days. Why did I wait this long? (laughs) Thank you for your positivity and encouragement. Really great to hear that, Alison. Uh, As I've said before, I think direct sales are just magic. Uh, Sophie says, um, 
The advice to create a new routine to jumpstart my daily creative practice was invaluable. Fantastic. Um, Emily Robertson said she just finished the show. Uh, my denial was keeping me from even listening to the tips. They were so great and it was worth the wait. <laughs> I think all the people who are in denial haven't listened to the shows yet. So uh, welcome back if you're listening later on. Uh, Monica T. Rodriguez says... I wrote my novel to the Game of Thrones soundtrack. It is a good one, especially for focus. Now I'm starting a new book. Do I need a new soundtrack? Maybe I should try Thunderstorms. <laughs> and on soundtracks, Dave Hayworth says, or oh, he also writes to Game of Thrones, but also recommends the Westworld um, series soundtrack by the same composer. I, I think it's Jawadi Ramin. I want to say Jawadi. Oh, such a good guy. Amazing. One more. Jenny Lisk says, so fun to be in the car today. Here you are a fan of the Hardy Boys. Me too. Um, great. Fantastic. Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. They are a new sponsor of the podcast, and I am really happy to have Pro Writing Aid on board. So why should you even consider writing and editing software? Well, before you send your book to your editor, it needs to be the best you can make it. You really don't want your editor to be bothering with commas and things when their whole point of an editor is to talk about bigger issues around structure and characters and all the things that um, they can help us with. Uh, Pro Writing Aid can help you with all the things, all the little things. So improvement such as searching out passive voice and that is a particularly bad issue for writers is is passive writing. Sentence length and variation, complexity, adverbs, repeated words, overuse of words and commas, which are my own personal nemesis. I literally can't get commas right still after all these years. And also typos for the specific type of English you use, which is very useful when you are British like me and you use American English. <laughs> if you are a word nerd like me, which I presume you are since you're here, then check out the Word Explorer, which goes way beyond a thesaurus in helping you discover new words for your manuscript. Really useful when you're editing, trying to get rid of those repetitions, but also when you're editing for audio to make it sound better. And the reason I have switched to using Pro Writing Aid after using Grammarly for years is that Pro Writing Aid works with Scrivener. Oh, this is... I don't, I just kind of annoyed with myself. I didn't know about this before, <laughs> but I no longer have to copy and paste every chapter somewhere else. I can just open my Scrivener project with Pro Writing Aid and this is going to save me a lot of time. So hopefully you will find it useful as well. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. I've also done a tutorial on how to use it at thecreativepen.com forward slash prowritingaid tutorial. Links in the show notes, but yes, check out the free edition or get 25% off prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. So thanks as ever to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It means so much to me and uh, demonstrates you want the show to continue. Thanks to new patrons, Katie Fox. Katie Forrest. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Kristen Harper, Will Brown, Neil M and Ellie Maloof. 
I really appreciate your support and I was meant to record the extra Q&A last week, but I really need to do it this week. So that is coming. If you support the show, you get the extra Q&A audio uh, every month and the backlist. So lots more audio. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Okay, let's get into the interview. Gail Carragher is the award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of steampunk and urban fantasy, comedy and queer romance. Her books have sold over a million copies in print and include the Parasol Protectorate and the Finishing School series. Welcome, Gail. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh no, very exciting. I was just saying before we started, I first heard about you like a decade ago, so I know you've been writing for at least that long, but tell us a bit more (laughs) about you and how you got into writing. Well, I'm one of those who's always written. I always joke that when I was a little kid, um, my mom would read me a book and if I didn't like the ending, I would be like, no, that's not how it goes. And then I would tell it back to her (laughs) how I thought the ending should go. And I think um, she should have known from that point on what my future was going to be. Uh, So I've always written. I just didn't. I was pretty sure I was uh, unable to make money off of it. I grew up with a bunch of poets and artists. I was like, well, that's not a viable career path. Um, So I went off and became an archaeologist for a while, which, of course, very lucrative. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well known. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that I always wrote. And, and since I always wrote, I figured I might as well try getting published. And then um, my first book sort of was a slow burn hit. And I've never looked back. And that was about 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. That is when I first heard about you. So um, you mentioned that you used to be an archaeologist. And that is one of those careers that in another life I would have been. But of course, we all have a romantic image, uh, you know, yes. in Indiana Jones and, and stuff. So, <laughs> so um, how does that archaeological background play into your writing? Well, I do use a lot of my, at least in my first couple of series, actually all three of them, uh, I've used um, the places that I excavated as part of my book. So uh, places I've traveled. Like you, I really enjoy traveling. I don't think I I love it quite as passionately as you do. (laughs) But, um, But so I like visiting a place before I write about it. So, because I feel like even though I'm writing alternate history most of the time, you get a sort of sense of the light in a place and the topography and kind of the smell of the sun on the stones and all of these things that if you don't actually visit the place, they're really hard to access. Even if it's, you know, 200, 300 years in the future when I'm visiting it, I I still feel like you get valuable information from actually physically visiting a place. So that is in my books a lot. Um, I also am very, uh, because of archaeology, I see objects as very representative of culture and personality. So a lot of my characters have like a sort of a signature gadget that that represents them. Like my first my first character uh, has a huge parasol that's like a Swiss Army kind of parasol with all these secret devices in it and stuff like that. And she carries it with her all the time. And I think that's a, definitely a sort of archaeology, like how does this object represent this person and by extension the culture that she belongs to, which in that case was middle Victorian. So that's kind of, I think that ties in a lot. Um, aesthetics are, I, I probably put too much of a moral standing in aesthetics <laughs> and, and, and branding, but it, it does help with that. It does help with me like manage branding, I think. 
Yeah, and you you mentioned um, you know sort of the uh, objects there and looking back at history, and I know that you incorporate some British uh, side into your book. So why <laughs> why the interest in in Great Britain? Well, the aforementioned mom who used to read to me is in fact a, an expat. And uh, she rather expediently used to ship me off as a kid to England quite a bit to stay with the grandparents in the summertime. So I spent a lot of summers in Devon. Um, and then I have dual citizenship. So I went to school in England, um, took one of my master's degrees there in Nottingham. So I'm pretty familiar with the UK <laughs> and, or, or uh, lower, like Southern England in particular, and then the Midlands. Um, and I think she raised me on sort of British children's literature, like The Wind of the Willows and The Borrowers and Tom Midnight, Tom's Midnight Garden and um, Secret Garden, all those kinds of books. And that very kind of informed my writer voice, I think. Uh, people always get annoyed that when they meet me in person, I don't have a British accent because so many of my characters are British. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like that's because you're hearing my mother, really. You're, she's just sort of speaking through me. It's her tonality. Um, it has, it makes me very interesting for my, my copy editors, I, because I've sort of a mix up of sentence structures that are UK and, and America. And then like, I'll, I'll slip in the British spellings of things sometimes. I went to school in the UK for a while. So like, um, yeah, eventually somebody will slap their head on the table and be like, Gail, which spelling are we using? You know? Oh, I which- know. I know that problem. And I just, I slip into Australian <laughs> and New Zealand as well, which is a bit of a pain. Although it's funny because a lot of people think I'm American until they hear my voice, just because most, you know, online people seem to be American. <laughs> Which is funny, but I, I'm interested in this because so you do have that British background, um, but you also write comedy alt history, uh, and yeah. I wondered about that. It's very difficult for people to write about another culture, especially with comedy, because it can move into parody or even stereotype. Yeah. So I wondered, yeah. like, how do you manage that? But how do you know where the line is between I want to do this because this is kind of a trope uh, of steampunk Victoriana. But is this moving too much into stereotype? Like, where's where's the line? Well, I, I write parody. I make no bones about it, quite frankly. Like, I write absurdist, like, brutally poking fun, Some sometimes quite brutally <laughs> poking. Mostly, I try to be gentle uh, at the Victorians. I think they're rife for it. I think it's like the, the Victorian society, particularly in London in, like, the 1870s, is just, like, gorgeously open to being brutally par- parodied. Like, I just, like, I mean... Um, and to a certain extent, British humor lends itself to that. I mean, you guys are very self-effacing and very kind of self-aware of the own absurdities in your past. I mean, you can look at some of the famous sort of sketch comedy groups out of England, like Monty Python and so forth. And and so, like, I figure like I figure it's open to it. And also, it's not punching like I'm not punching down. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's a white uh, or, you know, white dominant a colonizing nationalistic imperialistic agenda driven society so it's i don't feel like i'm being uh mean to a weakling <laughs> by any <laughs> fair <laughs> enough <laughs> um, so yeah but it's also uh, most of my British, fa- like, I, I haven't, or I should say, I haven't had any complaints from any of my British readers about it. I think they realize it's all in good humor. 
Um, but it's so I, I put um, the supernatural into my world and they're out in British society because I decided that that's the only way to explain how the Brits managed to conquer, you know, conquer a, an empire upon which the sun didn't set is they had werewolves in their army and vampires in their intelligence community. Like, how else would they have managed it? I mean, they're just this tiny island. Um, so, like, obviously they used the supernatural and they openly integrated them um, and the rest of Europe does not. And so this is sort of contentious. But it allows me sort of from an archaeological perspective to go back and look at the history we know and kind of rewrite it and be like, well, you know, Henry VIII broke with the church, you know, the Catholic Church. But and he says it's about divorce and all of this other stuff. But really, obviously, he wants to use the supernatural in his armies, right? Obviously, or why were the Victorians obsessed with modesty and covering up women's necks and things like that? Well, obviously, they, they, you had to like, you don't want to invite a vampire bite and or you want to hide it if you have been bitten. So it's just really fun for me to sort of retcon reality. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. And alt history fascinates me because it's it's not something I've written at all. So when when did you think, yeah, that's what I'm going to write? Did you come up with it because of that archaeology side? Or did you read books that were alt history? Like what, what drew you to that? Well, it was a big, I'm a huge fangirl, like a total sci-fi fantasy geek girl, grew up in conventions, all that sort of thing. Um, And I was really into urban fantasy when it was having its first big bubble of the uh, 1990s. Um, But I was noticing that it had a couple of things, like it was very dark um, and it was always set in a modern time. And so I was like, well, where's my really lighthearted urban fantasy with all this silliness that I love from comedic authors like Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett, um, and but you know, or even you know, sort of the lesser-known British comedy writers like James Harriet or Jerry Darrell. Um, and I was like, I love that kind of humor, and I would like to read it in a science fiction universe. I would like to read it with a female main character, maybe even written by a woman. And I would love it if it had an urban fantasy package. And then, of course, like, why not also make it historical? <laughs> I was like, I wanted all these things in a book, and the book wasn't happening. And so finally, I was like, right, uh, she who sees the problem is responsible for the solution. <laughs> so I guess I'm writing this book. Um, and so I just started doing a thought experiment about, you know, historical, where would I set it? I happened to be doing my PhD at the time. And so I was studying kind of the scientific revolution of the Victorian era because it it is the unfortunate roots of my own discipline. I mean, Victorians were looting ancient cultures. There's no other way to put it. But um, it meant that I'm studying how scientists were practicing science during the Victorian era because that's where my discipline has its roots. And, you know, that's part of getting your degree. So, yeah, I just started this thought experiment. And then I was like, well, like, what if, you know, what, how would scientists react if monsters lived among us, right? How, and, and early scientists from this time period, how would the Industrial Revolution have been affected or not affected or respond to the presence of these supernatural creatures in its midst? Um, and I kind of just went from there. Mm. Um, I, yeah, so it was just a fun thought experiment that turned into um, 20 almost 30 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's an interesting point, right? Because, and I love this. I think, I think you've built this fantastic universe and I, I can hear some of the audience going, oh, that research sounds fantastic. I am a research freak. I love research. Like I think if I could just research all day, I would probably do that and not write the story. So do you, and, and then with 30 books, the consistency must be really hard. So do, did you 
plan the universe and do you have a story bible like how much of that is really heavily planned and researched and and how much is kind of wing it and make it up per book <laughs> well i started out thinking that what i was writing was a standalone prequel to a series that i would write about the children of my my main character or the the next generation following it um, so, and then, but when I was signing the contract for Solus, they were like, we're, we want another book in the same series with the same characters. And I was like, oh, oh, oh all right. Um, so the first five books, which is the Parasol Protectorate, which is kind of the series I'm best known for, is a bit cobbled together. So I, I wrote the first one very strongly outlined. Um, and then I wrote the second one kind of like, okay, I guess I'm writing a series. So I'm going to throw a bunch of threads in the air. And then I spent the next three books kind of pulling all those threads back together again. <laughs> um, and sort of about halfway through the second one, I was like, I need a sort of general outline of this series. Um, and by the, by the third one, I was like, okay, two more books. And then I do like to finish series is, um, and that's because as a reader, I've had so many authors like betray me by not finishing a book series or, or, you know, very inexcusably die on me that <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't want to leave my readers like that. So I, I, I am a completist. I do like to actually finish series is, and I actually gravitate towards standalones myself as well. Um, so, so, and then, and then by that point, like the books were doing so well that a uh, young adult house approached me and they were like, would you write us, would you write us a series set in the same universe? And I was like, all right. And I pitched that one out as four books. So that one had a sort of arc ahead of time. Um, and then the spinoff series, which was always the one I originally intended to write. Um, that's also four books, but I, at that juncture, I was so comfortable with my publishing house. I knew they did two book contracts but it wasn't necessarily comfortable with traditional publishing anymore. Mm. So I wrote those books as two book sets just in case I got so mad with my publisher, I stormed away halfway through. Um, so, so that also plays into it, but I, I guess you could say about halfway through my career, about five years in, I, I really think a lot more about longer arcs and series arcs and stuff like that. And of course at this juncture now, I almost always write standalones. So it is sort of a mute, learning process. Oh no, well it's great to hear because I get so many questions. In fact, I answered a ton of questions today and so many people ask about series. Like, do you plan all these arcs? And I'm on book 11 of one series and I haven't, I'm not a a plotter at all. I'm a discovery writer. So I'm like, I literally don't know. And you just kind of have to trust your unconscious that something will turn out right in the end. But I yeah. want to I want to circle back because you've mentioned conventions. Of course, you've mentioned the parasol. Um, you are, how I first saw you was a picture of you. I think you were in your full cosplay with the parasol um, yes. at some convention. Um, so tell us a bit about this author brand that includes a physical person Sona. Okay. Um, I'm going to circle back really quickly to the question we just did, but which is just to say that what I use as a word writable is an open source wikia that my fans are also open to edit. Um, and I have to say, if you're planning a really complicated uh, sci-fi or fantasy universe that has a lot of Bible rules and stuff like that, I recommend using something like that from the get-go. It's one of my regrets that I I ended up having to hire somebody to transfer all of my physical notes over to this virtual reality. Mm. Um, and by all means, keep backups and all that sort of thing. But um, I do recommend if you're planning on something extensive that you actually use 
archivos or world builders or something that like, or just a wikia to sort of keep track of every, everything in a easily searchable way. Cause in my case, it did get a hold of me. So I just use a, a wiki, which is an open source platform. It's the same thing that Wikipedia is built on. Anyway, right. Uh, physical branding. So um, when I knew, when I, when Solus uh, like went off into the world, I knew I was going to use going to conventions as part of my brand building, for lack of a better word. I wouldn't have used that word at the time, but I always knew I wanted to do conventions and go to conventions. In fact, I met my agent, my editor, um, my publisher, and my publicist um, for Solis at a convention for the first time. I met them at Worldcon in Denver a long, a long time ago. And I knew that like switching up my image would be part of that. And partly that was to do with the fact that at the time I was, I thought I would be a full-time, full-track academic. And I'm an archaeologist, but I'm a science archaeologist by training. I have an MS uh, or an MSc. Um, so I was a little concerned that because of the, the romantic, frivolous, silly nature of what I wrote, it might uh, imp negatively impact my career. So I ran under a pen name. So that was all done. But I also was like, I would really also like to keep the physical appearances of me different at different kinds of events. So if I'm going to uh, academic event, I would be one reality, the archaeology mm. reality. And if I were going to a, and part of that was for my own kind of emotional, psychological stand. And it, it's weird because it comes off as slightly schizophrenic, but um, the act of like putting on the super cute dress. And most of the time I dress pretty rockabilly retro. And honestly, that's also an, that's an aesthetic I wear and was already wearing at conventions in general. Um, so it wasn't difficult for me to make this transition, um, but it's a little bit more girly than I sort of necessarily would be. But I knew I wanted to have a kind of armor that I put on that I'm like, OK, I'm putting on the cute dress. I'm putting on the vintage style glasses and I go out into the world um, representing my books. And the it's almost like that clothing reminds me um, that I'm at this event for my readers. So I don't, I don't, most of the time, I don't do events that are just author gatherings. I really go out and I do the convention circuit and I go to events because I want to meet my readers. Um, the best example I have of this is I was at uh, San Diego Comic-Con back in like 2012 or what have you, which is, you know, as I'm sure you're aware and I'm sure the listeners are aware, is a huge event. It, it's, um, you know, like at the time, 200,000 people, something like that. I mean, it's just, it's crazy huge. Mm. And I'm walking around as me. I'm not even in steampunk. I'm just in a little retro dress and I'm walking around the convention and somebody like spots me, yells, Gail, oh my God, you're Gail. And goes like running across Hall H and she's like, you're Gail Carragher. And I was like, why? Yes. Yes, I am. And it works. And so that's why I developed, um, I was like, oh, okay, this is proof positive that this is going in the correct direction. So, um, yeah, that's why I do it <laughs> both for my own psychosis, but also so that I am, I'm recognizable to my readers because why else would I do an event if I didn't want to say hi and meet them? And I'm yeah. lucky they're, they're really awesome. So. And yeah, a lot, I mean, a lot of your books have, um, women with parasols on the cover yeah. as well. So your book, your book brand resonates with your physical in-person brand. Yeah. Um, but obviously 
you've designed this over time. And and I wondered, like, if authors can't come up with a brand themselves, because, I mean, I struggle with this. I have two names and I like having two names. Um, but I, I love the idea of this armour and this kind of physical self, but also it's very difficult, even like colour scheme on a website, for example. So yeah. how might how might an author find that idea for branding or look at reader feedback or anything like that? So um, I like to say there are kind of two elements to the author brand. There's sort of intentional elements that you think thoughtfully about and control or hopefully do. Um, And then there are unintentional ones. So if what you're struggling with is the intentional ones, then I would say, you know, like sit down with some author friends um, or just actual friends and just talk about things like what what reminds me of you like what colors you associate with me it can be as simple as that um or you can let your publishing house kind of take the lead line on that in terms of like if if you're traditionally published the cover art that they come up with that sort of thing um or it can be influenced by the kinds of book you books you write like for example if you're writing dark and gritty urban fantasy then obviously your colors are probably going to be dark blues and purples and that sort of thing and And so um, in my case, I let Orbit, my first publisher, kind of take the lead on the style of fonts, for example, that I use on my website and that I use on my self-published books since then. Um, And sort of the the style of cover art and the style of photography and the holding of the parasol and all of that sort of thing. So I kind of let that start the information. But I knew that um, I personally representing myself online wanted to be more positive and happy go lucky than the sort of darker colors of the cover. So I, I like leaned into sort of peaches and pinks and kind of happy, bright, cheerful colors. And then I just talked to some sort of graphic designer friends of mine in terms of coming up with good complementary colors for, for my website for like what links it would be and all that sort of stuff. And, and like, if you're on your own and you're feeling very kind of solitary about this and you want to go on this journey by yourself, you can just take a look at some of your favorite authors or some of the comp authors that are some of the comparable authors that you think your books are going to be compared to, or you're going to show up and they're also bought so, or what have you and see what their websites look like. Um, and, and whether you find that attractive emotionally as a reader, um, whether you want to explore further on their website. Um, and, and I mean, just kind of building your own mental awareness of like, oh, that color pulls me in. That makes me feel cheerful. That, that's sort of, sort of the emotional resonance of these sorts of things. I mean, there are whole huge industries that are built up around that. And then the flip side is the unintentional branding. And those are the things that are just going to get associated with you because often the way you behave on social media. Um, and my best example for this is, is I have this friend. And we'll call him Sam because that's his name. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he is a writer uh, and he has a pug. And so he would post pictures of his pug all the time. And so people who came at him and found him just as, as fans of his writing, like, loved the pug. And so what they would do is they would respond with pictures of their own pugs. Um, And then if a pug was in the media for any reason, then they would send him pictures of the pug or they would tag him in videos of the pug. And so he kind of became this repository of pugs. (laughs) And and, and we were talking, I I had exactly the same thing happen to me with the octopus, which is kind of branded into my books. It It is a favorite animal of mine. I do genuinely love the octopus. But now anybody sees an octopus and they will share me share the picture of the octopus. And that's fantastic, except when you have, you know, 30, 60, 100,000 followers and then 
300 people share the same pug with you or share the same, right? And then you're like, oh my God, my feed is full of this one pug that has just hit the zeitgeist. Um, and Sam was just annoyed that it has kept happening to him. He's like, I'm not really interested in other people's pugs. I'm only interested in my pug. And I was like, that's the, that's not the point. And here's the point. The point is, is that you can only write however many books you can write in a year. And in between the time while you're writing and not actually publishing a book, someone saw a pug and thought of you. So the point is that you are in their brains <laughs> in between books that they haven't forgotten about you. That's for me, that's the kind of whole point of being on social media. And, um, and so when they send you the pug and you've seen the pug a thousand times before, you don't get mad. You say, thank you. And what you're saying thank you for is maybe the pug, but it's mostly that they thought about you. Because that and and that is brand, right? To a certain from for sort of authorial emotional resonance reasons, that is brand is the things that become associated with you that people think of you outside of context. One of my favorite things in the entire universe is when somebody's out like shopping at Target and they see a stuffed hedgehog and they take a photograph of the stuffed hedgehog and they upload it and they share it with me. And I'm like, how many steps they had to go through? Because when they were out about their lives, they saw something that reminded them of this author that they read maybe once or twice a year, right? That's, for me, that's an enormous privilege and achievement to have entered somebody's life in that way. Damn, just own the pugs. Just own the pugs. The pugs are now yours. You have the pugs. <laughs> like, say thank you for the pugs. Um, and those are, and like, he didn't control that. He was just sharing this thing that he loved. Um, and it just generated a response in his readers that allowed, they just want to connect with you. They just love you and what you have given them. I mean, the, the biggest piece I, of advice I give authors all the time is pretty simple. It's just treat your readers the way you would want your favorite author to treat you. Like we're all readers. <laughs> like authors are our heroes or heroines. So like, that's what we want is we, we just want, as readers, we just want an author to be kind and decent and to like be excited that we have a pug, right? <laughs> that we share this thing. Yeah. And it's funny. I do actually uh, ask, you know, I tell people about my love of grave graveyards. I'm a taffophile and I take pictures and share them on my Instagram and people send me pictures of graveyards. And uh, I, I started, I started doing that sort of about four years ago and I felt embarrassed at first because I thought, oh, am I weird? And then whenever I speak, I often ask people, so who likes graveyards and there's about usually about a quarter of the room who say yes I love graveyards and I'm like you are my people you know you're my people and uh, other people who don't like graveyards might also like my book but there's something about something we all like that connects so true so true and I, I feel like it enters your that undescribable thing a love of a thing it enters your book's and it, it reaches out to people who, for lack of a better word, are somewhat like you in some way. A another great example I have of this is I was walking towards the signing area at a Worldcon, and I am signing, and George R. R. Martin is signing. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, yeah, exactly. So there's this enormous line for George, right? Um, and there's a there's a, a a much much less long line for me, but still, it's a decent little line. And I'm like, great, people came for me. That's always so exciting too. Is that the idea that someone would would spend time waiting for you in order to get a book signed is just like a crazy thought to me. Um, but, but so like, I feel so honored every time I, I think again, cause I come out of fandom and I'm like, yay, I have people who want my stuff. Um, 
And but I could look and see immediately which line was my line. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> because I know my fans and there they are. And like at least, like you said, you know, a quarter to half of them are gonna be wearing cute little retro dresses. And it's it's not like I put rockabilly in my books or anything, but they're probably gonna have candy colored hair. They're probably gonna have a tattoo or two somewhere on them. And they're probably gonna be chatting with each other in line. I have really sort of social cheerful fans. And so they tend to like make friends in the signing line and stuff. So, but it's, it's just, and, and those are all things I think that are just kind of parts of me that have leaked into my books. And as a you know direct result, it's also the type of person who's going to come up to an author and is going to chat to an author also has certain qualities as well. But um, it's just, it's kind of, it's sort of joyful to like walk in and be like, I, I bet I can guess which ones read me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. So um, you did mention uh, about your publishing journey that you've been published by Orbit, I think was your first publisher and you have yeah. self, self-published self books. So how, and you also mentioned anger potentially at a publisher. So how has your experience <laughs> of publishing changed over your, your author time? Well, I am, um, I was quite tried to start with. I mean, I was, um, I have you know, 21 books, I think, with traditional public. No, that seems a little high. Uh, quite a few books with oh, over a dozen <laughs> books with traditional publishers. And, um, and they did great for me. I mean, um, I had unprecedented influence and control over my cover art, which let's be very clear. Most authors have nothing to do with their cover art. If you're traditionally published, they were like shocked, I think by my, the success of my quirky little book. And so they were kind of like, okay, well, I've always been super experimental. So they were like, well, Amazon is offering us this weird gold box thing, but we have to, you know, drop your the price of your book to like two ninety nine, And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> do the thing. Yes, please do the thing. Um, uh, so I, and they, I sort of got that reputation with the traditional publishers that you could experiment with Gail. <laughs> Gail be like, sure, whatever, let's do it. I'll give it a try. What do you want to do? Um, so we've actually had a great, I've actually had a great relationship with my traditional publisher. It is traditional publishing that I've had some challenges with over the years. Um, and so I'm I'm a bit of a control freak, as you might know. You know, if someone who's as careful with their image as I am, you can probably tell I, I have control freak tendencies. Um, and it was just a lot of stuff about the publishing industry started to wear on me in terms of length of time before a book had come out, um, lack of information in terms of like sales. So like if I'm going to do something, I want to be able to see if it's an effective thing. Um, like one of my great joys, at least early on in my career, was that Amazon would let me have access to demographic data. So they won't tell you the specifics for your traditional public. You can go in um, Author Central and like claim all of your books, and then you can each you can sort of see distribution. And so one of the things that you I could see at least early on was um, after I left an area, you could for an event, mm-hmm. I could see the spike in book sales to that area. And it's just, it's just Nielsen data, but still it was data that I like, I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. So like I went to Seattle and then I go a, a couple weeks later and I look at the demographics and Seattle has gone up to the top of the list of like places that buy my book. Mm. So I was like, okay, so like, 
so in-person things are actually effective because you're, you're never sure when you're on the ground, like what's working and what isn't. Um, and I wasn't getting that kind of feedback directly from my publisher where I would be like, well, I did the interview for the Huffington Post, but did we get a spike of any kind? Can you give me any feedback? And so I just started to get kind of frustrated by that kind of thing. And eventually I was like, all right, well, fortunately for me, my agent is a ball buster. She's I have a fantastic literary agent and she has been with me from the start. Um, and so she has gave me an iron option clause. It is one of the tightest option clauses I've ever seen, which is, um, which is author slang for saying <laughs> the clause in the contract that says what books the publisher has the rights to buy from you next. That's your option clause. And so that option clause can be, you know, like we, the publisher would like to buy any book you write next, which is mm. not good. Mm. <laughs> We, the publisher, would like to write any book written under the name Gail Carriger that is for an adult marketplace that is over 40,000 words that is set in an alternate historical fantasy setting. That is an incredibly tight option clause, and that is what you really want. Um, so basically, because mine was uh, very tight, um, I could just be like, well, I can write. I can write stuff in this universe and I have a wonderful foundation in the universe and they've given me a consistent brand, even though I went, I have a different publisher for my young adult stuff. They still stuck with the same sort of style of cover art and everything. So I have this lovely uh, brand of cover art and, and that sort of thing that is relatively cheap for me to imitate self publishing because they're pho their photograph cover art based covers. And I was like, I'm just going to start, doing this myself. No, it can't be too hard. Um, it, it is really hard as it turns out. Um, and then the other thing for me is podcasts. Like I've, I've listened to you forever. It feels like, um, and I'm have tons of friends who are in the podcasting universe, like, um, T Morris and Pip Ballantyne who were pub or, um, Scott Sigler who were publishing fiction in audio. And that by its very nature was sort of, how do we market? How do we self publish? And so I paid very close attention to everything that all of these other authors were doing. Um, so even though I have like New York Times and all of these traditional accolades, I've always kind of behaved like a self-published author anyway, because all my friends were, <laughs> were starting that way and, and now are that way. Um, and so I had a good foundation of kind of resources so that when I started doing self-publishing, I was like, all right. Um, my biggest regret, and I will say this to anyone in your audience, whether self-publishing or traditional, is is not getting my newsletter going sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, number one regret of everyone. <laughs> of everyone, yeah, I, yeah, man. Um, although, like, I did as soon as I had a newsletter, I because I have an in-person brand, um, and this is something that people uh, drop. So again, big piece of advice is take a physical paper sign-up sheet with you when you do events, like a newsletter sign-up sheet, a pen and a piece of paper that says, this is for my newsletter, whatever the name of the newsletter is, mine's called the Chirrup, um, and then name, and then your, your email address. Um, don't do it digitally. They have apps for that. People don't like touching other people's technology. There's a psychological thing there. So just a piece of paper, <laughs> a spare pen. Um, and, and just to add to that, um, because uh, I'm, well, technically I'm not in Europe now because I'm in England, but in the in the European Union with GDPR, if you do a physical sign-up sheet, you also need a printed out privacy policy uh, uh, next to it. So it becomes a little more complicated for G GDPR, but Americans don't need to do 
that yet. So oh, I just, I just, the sign up sheet just puts them into the start of the funnel. So like I have the privacy and GDPR thing as part of the funnel. So um, it just, it just starts the process. So then mm. they get a little thing that says, you know, uh, this is the beginning process for a newsletter. Are you interested? Are you actually interested? Here's the privacy notification and that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's how I handle it. Um no, fantastic. I, I yeah. think it, it's, it is interesting to see, as you said, it sounds like you've been pretty much indie, even though you were with traditional publishing, you had quite an indie attitude, which is obviously serving you now. But um, we're almost out of time. And I did want to ask you one more question, because in your 2019 roundup, and you have a really uh, substantial website with lots of articles and useful things. So I really urge people to go check that out. Um, but you mentioned in 2019, you had several business crises. So I, I wonder, <laughs> if um you you could share like what you know you've been doing this a long time now but how does your author business shake out and how are you managing this full-time life yeah so I've been full-time for I guess about six years now um a lot of I since I am control freak and I am I try and do too much I'm, I'm a workaholic which I'm sure many I'm sure you're I'm familiar Me too. With. yeah not at all <laughs> um yeah um yeah I'm sure many many authors are um so I, I did have to have people come to me and be like, Gail, it, it, it's time for you to get an assistant. Like it, it's like, and eventually my agent who I, who I do listen to <laughs> was like, get an assistant. <laughs> like it's time because I was spending like six hours a day just doing, responding to, to, you know, ban emails and calling cards and dealing with Facebook and all this sort of thing. And so, um, I have an assistant now, so I have an in, she comes in once a week. She's here right now, actually, <laughs> giggling as I'm talking to you. Um, and, and and she does things like like mailing and like so that's why I have someone who's in person. I know many because I do a lot of uh, physical giveaways of books and stuff, um, mostly for my newsletter. Uh, so uh, so an assistant is one of the ways I handle it now, and she is she's in in once a once a week and then um, remote the rest of the time, and she's essentially part-time um you know sometimes she gets more hours sometimes she does less so that was a big one for me in how to handle things um i turned llc so that was a uh, was exciting you know for the, the american audience that's that's always a thrill and a half is to deal with the whole all the taxes and stuff like that so my thing now and i kind of have always been like this is I know that I could, for example, learn how to change the oil in my car, but <laughs> I would rather be writing. I should be writing. So uh, I find a mechanic to change the oil in my car. And that's kind of how I handle my um, self-publishing road as well. So, um, you know, like, for example, someone's like, why don't you use mel vellum? And I'm like, I could take the time and learn how to use vellum. And maybe I will at some point. But right now I have a formatter who I work with, who I really love. And she's fast and she does it quickly. And so I, I use a formatter for that stage of the process. So I just have experts. I just find and identify experts. And I'm like, you're going to do this. You're going to, you know, and I will pay you and I pay well. Um, so I still have a, I have a developmental editor that I hire, you know, even after 30 books for, as far as I'm concerned, that's a very necessary thing. I like to write short and tight. So I need somebody who's going to keep me on track. I have a copy editor. I have a proof editor. I have a formatter. I have all of, you know, I have beta readers. So I basically just have put myself together a team. Um, and that's how I manage. And I would be lost. I, in fact, I get lost if someone leaves, leaves my team. I'm like, oh, God, please, please be available. <laughs> please don't, please don't leave me. 
Well, no, I think that's a really good tip. And and I, I've said that as well. I mean, you the, the word self-publishing is actually totally wrong because those of us who do it full-time or professionally, we all work with other professionals and other professional creators in, in their fields. So I think that's that's fantastic um, as, as a lesson learned. So we are out of time. Where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Uh, you can search Gail, that's the, uh, the British spelling G-A-I-L, um, and Carriger, which is C-A-R-R-I-G-E-R. I'm very good on my SEO, so I uh, will come up right away on most things, on most platforms, if you want to connect with me on social media. Although, like I said, um, my, I do my social media for my fans almost exclusively. So um, if you're not a reader of mine, you're probably not going to get much from you know an octopus wearing a flowered hat. Although <laughs> so you're welcome to follow me if you'd like to. Or right now it's all hedgehogs all the time because I'm obsessed with hedgehogs these days. Um, however, if you go to my website, which is um, there is a resources in the dropdown. And there's all, I have collected um, articles by myself and others, some of them for new writers, some of them about marketing. So, so there is a whole, I do have a whole section for um, new authors or, or middle of career authors, depending on where you are and what you'd like. Um, and also, if you are looking for some of those experts I'm talking about, if you go to my contact page on my website, I've just filled it in with the names of all of the people I work with. So um, all of the people who do my copy editing and cover art and all that sort of thing. So if you're looking for that information, that is also there. <laughs> so everything's on my website. You just have to poke about a bit. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Gail. That was great. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. It's a real pleasure and, and an honor. I feel like it's been 10 years in the making. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you found the discussion with Gail interesting and that it's given you some ideas for shaping your author brand. So next week, I'll be talking about writing and working together as a creative couple with Jeff Adams and Will Knauss from the podcast with the best name ever, the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. Uh, Jeff and Will are fantastic. I got to hang out with them at Podcast Movement last year and uh, really great to have them on the show next week. So stay safe and stay sane. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.